0: Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and the implications to the church today. Today on our Ephesiology Podcast, we are joined by Michael, our resident Ephesiologist. My name is Andrew Johnson. I'm an associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And we have two incredible guests. Uh, we are being rejoined by Alan Hirsch and his co-author, Mike Frost. So uh, we we said ahead of time, what's the best way to have them, uh, us talk about them, and they're actually going to talk about each other. So Alan, can you please tell us about <laughs> Michael Frost?
1: Sure. I mean, Mike, I would have to say, is my best friend, uh, person I, you know, we've tracked a long way together and, um, you know, we, when we first kind of connected was at a conference and it was like one of those moments, we just knew that there was some sort of mind mail going on. So we, there was a, a, a kind of bond, you know, between us. It does really kind of um, spend the time. He is a prolific writer. I think he's the best uh, communicator around. Uh, and he, he, was in Sydney, uh, he's at Morling college, He's done various things there, basically a head museologist there at, uh, at, uh, yes, morning. So, yeah, dear friend, um, and a privilege to have written the books for him. That
0: is great. Uh, Alan, thank you very much for introducing us to the illustrious, uh, Mr. Michael Frost. Why don't you introduce Alan Hirsch to all of us as
2: well? I'll introduce him to, to our listeners. Uh, Alan Hirsch was born in South Africa in 19 I don't <laughs> know year <laughs> actually um, a few years before me not, not Fifty nine. Yes. Uh, raised a, uh, in South Africa emigrated to Australia where um uh he became a Christian uh out of a you know fairly uh, uh kind of recalcitrant and and dark kind of background became a very committed and passionate follower of Jesus eventually uh uh, studied theology, became a pastor of a uh, of a what was a small and traditional Church of Christ church in an urban context, and brought about a real reflowering of that as that church discovered its mission to to the poor and to the kind of the freaks of the city. Uh, from there, he he went into um, kind of hospitality ministry. He set up a, a, a nightclub and restaurant uh, in order to engage with the city. And from there, he's kind of uh, catapulted into international stardom, really. So uh, Alan and I wrote The Shaping of Things to Come uh, back in the early 2000s. And on the strength of that, uh, he moved to the US and has been kind of selling kind of the missional juju to uh, to the Americans uh, for for the rest of that period of time. And so a lot of people will know his work since then in terms of his writing and He's uh, guest lecturing at various colleges and seminaries, and speaking at conferences, including some kind of pretty large ones, in the Leadership Network, and Exponential, and groups like that. So, um, yeah, he's uh, he's a complete uh, Australian legend, making a big impact on the world stage, and desperately trying to kind of energize the church to re-encounter the mission of God uh, and to rediscover the the teaching, the vision. The purposes of, of Jesus. And uh, this may be straying out of an introduction to him, but it might be kind of a jumping off point for our discussion. But I think, in many respects, we Australians have always assumed if you can kind of sell an idea to the Americans, the Americans can kind of package that thing up, develop a whole bunch of algorithms for it, like, you know, put it into a fancy box and can sell it to the whole world. And so if you can get them sick on the mission of God, they can infect the whole world. There's no question about that. America's kind of cultural imperialism can be used for both good as well as for evil. In this case, I think it could be used for good. But one of the great disappointments I think for Alan, I don't want to speak for him, but certainly I share this disappointment, has been how over the last few years, particularly the evangelical church in America, uh has just lost so so much of its credentials globally in, in, in the, the respect that it seems now that, you know, where, whereas they kind of sold to us the whole Billy Graham kind of rally-style approach to evangelism, and they sold to us kind of both theory and i mean that's just infected the whole world but I mean, american christians get hold of something as i said they can package it up and infect the rest of the world with it but it, now it feels to me like people around the world are saying yeah not so much that mm-hmm. whole american evangelical thing like i think it's it's proved itself to be in some way defective and that's a great disappointment because of the incredible resources and energy and wealth and, uh, and vision that that sector of the church has had, it's a great disappointment to us to see it losing its luster mm-hmm. in, in the world's
0: eyes. I, I wow. think it's, uh, as an American, I think, I mean, Michael, I'll speak for the Ephesiology podcast. Um, some of the things that you just laid out have been things that we have been talking about uh, for weeks and weeks and months and months that, um, that luster has been lost in America. But I will tell you, it stings a little bit more to hear it from somebody who's not in America, right? Like sometimes, you know, in house, Hey, this might not be the best thing that we've got going, but we're going to put it out and, uh, it's our mess. But when other people tell you, we can see your mess, it is so sad it is so sad and um uh well, it struck me check. mike
3: when yeah it struck me as as you were sharing this uh it is a, a knife uh in the heart uh but it's not something new i, I can remember as a young seminarian in the 1990s uh that came came back from the mission field um anxious to dive deeply into theology and missiology. And one of the first books I read was uh, Alistair McGrath's um, uh, The Future of Evangelicalism. And I can remember reading it and being horribly offended uh, by this British theologian who was trying to uh, speak into the American church. And I thought, what are you you talking about? Why are you uh, in, in some way admonishing us And I think there has been this sort of American evangelical elitism uh, that says, you know, we don't need what somebody else is pandering. Um, But of course, over the years, I have learned sometimes in the hard way, we we just need to listen. We need to be better listeners as American evangelicals, because the evangelical world is quite huge uh, in comparison to to the numbers in the United States, and we need our brothers and sisters to be speaking to us and uh, and admonishing us when it's proper, encouraging us uh, when we're going adrift from the mission, and uh, and I'm I'm very grateful for the work that you guys have done to help us to at least uh, try to write this
2: sinking evangelical uh ship yeah because i mean it's not like it's without hope it's not like i'm saying well that that train has left the station you know the whole american evangelical church is like that's a that's a kind of a a past era we need to get on with it far from it i mean i think when americans become revitalized we saw that beginning of the 20th century with the Pentecostal movement, and then in the 1970s with the kind of charismatic or third wave movement, and you see it regularly, even the kind of the whole missional discussion that may have emerged from Europe, kind of really being brought great energy from the Americans, likewise the church planting movements and micro church movements. So when Americans do get it, I mean, there's, 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 there's enormous possibilities. It's just that, um, and part of the reason for Re-Jesus, I guess, is to kind of re-energize uh, the Church in America to take their eye off their obsessions, maybe with politics or with the culture wars, or with you know wanting to have some kind of cultural ascendancy in some way and to read Jesus, rediscover the way of Jesus. Because when they do, there's enormous potential for the world in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think that's a perfect uh entry point. Um, so I we we are having these fine gentlemen on the Ephesiology podcast uh, because there is now a re-release a second edition of the book read jesus back in 2008 these two uh wrote read jesus um they've kind of hinted at it uh so um alan i would like, like to kick it to you why did you feel read jesus needed not to stay in a single edition form but deserve to have a second edition come out today
1: yes uh, andrew what um um what we wrote back in 2008, like I said, uh it was as you as you've already said. So um, and the problem is with that, you know, I think it was very current then as well. Um, Michael and myself were probably be somewhat unwisely overproducing books. And so for myself, I had about four books come out the same year. And I think Michael had two or something like that. So the, the problem with that, of course, is that you know, no matter how much you might even like us or you know, inclined to read our books, you're not going to buy six of them or seven, whatever it was. And uh so actually the message was lost. Um, in some ways, it was it was muted. And um, but you know, in reflection, uh, I feel, and I think Mike agrees with me here, um, that actually I think it was more written for this time than even then. I mean, right now, I think quite. Quite evidently, um, we have a deep need to recalibrate and to find our core and to um, to reset the agenda. Um, given the last five six years, which have been somewhat apocalyptic, revelatory, um, and I think under those conditions have called us to uh, recognize some of our inherent flaws and our fate, you know our, our errors and uh, our sins. And, uh, and then as we you know where do we go to to know ourselves again we we can only return to Jesus and so the whole call back to Jesus, which is what the book's about, is recalibrating back to the person, the work, the phenomenon of Jesus Christ and that we might more appropriately reflect, him and his purposes in the world as god's people as the body of christ i think that's really at the heart of it and i think i couldn't think of a more important message right now and there's all the missional stuff in my opinion and until we get this right we're going to gonna make we're going to weaponize bad religion and i think that's been a big repentance for me Mm -hmm. is that if we don't get jesus right you, you know you you're making bad religion better at being bad and i'm thinking for me this is the only way forward we have to correct at this point
3: alan you you uh, referred to some flaws that you have recognized it, it, elaborate a little bit on on what you see as those flaws in in our expression of christianity and in our thinking about who jesus
1: is well um so I mean, you know, Mike has referred to I mean all the ideological wars, particularly in the states. Now this is not limited, by the way, to America. Although I think it is particularly focused there, uh, we are seeing similar flaws in our in our own expression of evangelicalism and around the world. So, but um, but um, but I think for me, you know the. The, the co-option, I think, of much of evangelicalism, particularly in the States, to Trump's agenda, you know, says something, putting aside the politics of it, you know. I would say simply this. you, If you look at Trump and what he stands for, and then you look at Jesus, I would say to you, you can't get excited about Trump and get excited about Jesus. You can't love both. You can you can vote here and ask forgiveness, you know, because you were simply Republican, whatever. That's not an issue. I could care less about the politics, but you cannot get passionate. You're not allowed to. If you claim Jesus as your Lord, then 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 you're not allowed to go in that direction. Simply because they are at odds with each other almost at every point. So I say it this way: for me, the real issue is, and I think the biggest frailty is that we now. Have a church that doesn't look at, sound, and think like Jesus. Doesn't look, act, sound, and think like Jesus. Now, if a pe- people claiming to be a church doesn't look, act, sound, and think like Jesus, you have to ask the question: is it a church? How else will we know who we are? Unless it is Jesus. And if we are a group of people who doesn't reflect Jesus, I I I just don't know. It's not the sacraments that define us. It's not, it's not priestly work, and it can only be that we must look like our founder. And so the, hence the idea we must return to our founder. And putting aside, don't, don't, I don't want the your audience to think it's, this is political. I could care less about that stuff. This is much more about the character and the content of the Christian faith itself. And it goes much deeper to a kind of a bankruptcy in the way we understand Jesus and live appropriately and, and uh, allow ourselves to be impacted by him. I think when people
2: hear Alan say those kinds of things, they might not disagree. You know, you've got the what would Jesus do movement or you hear someone like Alan saying we've got to be defined by Jesus. And I think lots of Christians would nod. Yeah, sure. But going further, agreeing with Alan and pushing that even further, it's not just about Jesus as some kind of emblem or, you know, what would Jesus do or I love Jesus or we need to get back to Jesus. As though somehow saying that, it, you know, sounds, has, has some kind of ring of truth about it. It's also about who is this Jesus that we're getting back to and what ways are we likely to be shaped by him and how do we know him and in what ways do we relate to him? And I, I fear that there's a lot of, um, certainly in well-meaning evangelical people, a kind of warm feeling about Jesus. He died for my sins and, you know, yes, we've got to get back to Jesus. But actually, encountering the kind of radical kingdom message of Jesus is an, another story again. Like what Alan is saying is let's be shaped not just by a kind of a sentimental attachment to Jesus as my savior. But let's be shaped by the, the kingdom that we've sworn allegiance to and uh and the king that we follow, uh come, come what may. I mean, again, not wanting to be political, but it, you know, one of the great emblems of that whole era for me was when Donald Trump walked out into Lafayette Square in the middle of the Black Lives Matter and, and George Floyd um protests. And you can have your own opinions about how violent or otherwise those protests were or how legitimate or appropriate they were. But here were people crying out for racial reconciliation and justice, whether you think the way they were doing it was appropriate or not. Um, and in the midst of that, he walked out into that square and held up a Bible and um, and was asked, is it it his Bible? No, it's a Bible. I've always thought some investigative reporters should track down that Bible. Where the heck is that Bible? Like, that's a famous Bible now. Like, that, that should go in that Bible museum thing they've got there in Washington. Like, he holds it up as though, like, this is what I'm standing for, and here are all these people out here protesting and smashing windows and all that kind of jazz. And it just, to me, was so emblematic because... I think even the greatest supporter of Donald Trump would say it's pretty clear he doesn't really read the Bible and doesn't really know very much about, about Jesus. But this thing just becomes a symbol or an emblem and say, like, this is what I stand for. Uh, and I fear that there's a, in evangelicalism, there's a lot of affirmation of the word of God and a lot of like Jesus is my savior, and what would Jesus do? And yet we're going to get back to Jesus. But what would that actually look like if we truly committed ourselves as congregations of, of women and men to devote ourselves to being shaped by the kingdom teaching of Jesus? That's what Alan's talking about, and that's what we're calling the church to in this book.
3: You've got the, uh, uh, the other look. thing that
1: um, Oh, after you, Alan. Michael, sorry, but I just say when Michael normally add to that, Mike, has, um, I think, rightly always spoke about the another way of being human and that Jesus is not only simply our savior, he is that. He is our Lord, our master, the kingdom dynamics at work. But he is also God's way of being human. In other words, he is 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 um he is how God in God intends the human race to be and look like. And, and it, it's not just Christians. I do believe he sets the whole agenda as the new Adam. Uh, and uh and so we have to take uh, his his human life as a cue to what kind of life that we must live. And this is the issue of discipleship. And discipleship is the process of becoming more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. Uh, to you know, living life in conformity to him, being transformed into his likeness, in union with Christ. It's a Jesus based affair. And I think the church, by and large, sucks at discipleship. And I think it shows mm-hmm. this is what Bonifa dealt with, as uh, Michael Cooper kind of will readily confirm, it was that Christless Christianity, that a a Christianity without Christ, uh, which he says is a Christianity without discipleship. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a real issue. One of our flaws, um,
2: Michael, uh, that we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I mean, I, I teach at a theological seminary. I mean, I teach in the missions department, but a few years ago, I was asked to teach a, a, a first year entry level unit called Jesus and the Gospels. It's just an introduction to the Gospels, basically. Um, and uh, I've, I've been teaching it so um, it's basically first year at seminary. You've got all these visions about you know wanting to serve the Lord or, or what have you. Well, let's go back to the Gospels. Who is Jesus? And I'm no New Testament scholar. I readily admit that. Um, but when you introduce Students to Jesus, his life, uh, his his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. You explain how all of this was foretold, all the anticipation of of Israel at that time about a coming kingdom, about what the way in which Jesus presents that kingdom in both surprising and affirming ways to first century people, Uh, the vision that he has for this new way of being human that Alan is referring to, um, the way in which every facet, every aspect of his life kind of reflects that or mirrors that, like a a mirror ball, like it just just gives off kingdom. and, And at the center of that is his identity as the king. Uh, it astonishes me, guys, how many students, and I've been teaching that class for a long time, how many students say, I feel like I, I met Jesus in this class. Mm. Like, I didn't know that Jesus from my church. I didn't hear about that Je- I mean, I heard about Jesus. You know, he said these good things. He, he raised people from the dead and he healed people and he died for my sins. Like They know that. I often say they know Jesus' greatest hits. They know, like, his birth, his death, a couple of miracles and a couple of, a couple <laughs> of uh, parables. But... I didn't know that Jesus, they say. And to me, it, it, that's part of the tragedy. It's that you have to go and pay a lot of money to go to seminary in order to learn about Jesus. I mean, really, the assumption ought to be that you already know all that from your life in church, that as a congregation, you've been studying that, shaping your lives around that, discipling each other to become more like that, like for years and years and years. And now you come to seminary. Seminary is finishing school. But it often astonishes me. I've had students actually say to me, I think i became a Christian in this class. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you can become a Christian in this class. Like you already love Jesus and he loves you. But you discovered who it was you are actually following and what an extraordinary and awesome task you've, you've put your hand to. Um, now that should not be happening. And I don't say that as a, a slide on more in college students. I find that in churches and conferences and seminaries all around the place. And that's frankly just not good enough. And that's on our churches, I think. And,
3: and so what does that tell us, Mike? I mean, there's a huge gap between between the pulpit and uh, the the seminary, it seems like, and then and then even a greater gap between the pulpit and the pew. Uh, what's the corrective here?
2: Yeah, it's, I, th- I think you're right. I think when you think about, it, like those of us who do operate, and I don't consider myself any great uh, scholar or anything, but those of us who do operate in theological academic circles, or those members of the clergy who are engaged and interested in that, We think to ourselves, well, everyone's talking about this. Like we went through the whole conversation about the new perspective on Paul, and now we're we're into exploring what it looks like for us to have this kind of King Jesus gospel. And I mean, everyone's talking about that. I mean, you know, Tom Wright and Michael Bird and Scott McKnight and blah blah blah. Everyone isn't everyone doing that? And then you discover, as as you just said, there actually is this big gap because in the congregations and and many case of many clergy. No, they're not. They're not engaging in that conversation or reading that material or exploring those ideas. And more's the pity. The idea has been, hasn't it, that the seminary or theological college equips leaders who then take that material and explore it with congregations. I suspect, Michael, it's a it's a bit of a, you know, a milk and meat kind of thing. Like, you know, the we think to ourselves like, oh, you learn about Jesus when you're little in Sunday school and that's the milk, you know, you kind of get the simple stuff about how Jesus loves you and dies for you, and then you move on to kind of the meaty stuff, and that might be for certain evangelicals kind of Pauline material or Pentecostal circles. It's often kind of um, Old Testament material. I don't mean to kind of be too um, caricature people there, but we find ourselves into the areas of Scripture that we like And that's the meat. And I think, well, actually, we should reverse that the meat that we should be chewing on and being sustained by is the study of Jesus. That's what we do. That's what the sacraments are about. I know Alan's Pretty unsacramental in this respect. And I'm a little bit more sacramental than he is. But what's the point of having that meal every single time we meet? It's because we're actually eating the gospel. We're, we're going to like not just hear about it, not just learn about it, not just talk about it. We're going to eat it. We're going to ingest it. And that story is going to get told over and over and over. Not just the story about his death on the cross, but the story of Jesus. And I, I wonder whether in our congregations just recovering the idea of the gospels as the meat. Then we need to explore implications, and the whole of Scripture is the Word of God. I'm not discounting that, but it just seems to me as though um, we learned the stuff about Jesus when we were kids, and now we've moved on. Mm. How much is it
3: do you think? And I, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but that's kind of what we do on this podcast occasionally. Uh, how much of this do you think is that we just simply don't have a healthy fear of who Jesus really is?
1: Uh, I think that the, that what Mike has been saying is that there's a familiarity. We think we know who Jesus is, and yet um, somehow he has eluded uh, our grasp. And um, I think we've tended, like Mike has said, is to to um, to seem as very much more something that you know for the help the kids become you know kind of. You know, it's a moralistic Jesus to, you know, to help the kids become well-adjusted, middle-class people, hopefully with PhDs, you know. There is nothing to say that is alternative to what our middle-class sensibilities already dictate to us. I think we've co-opted Jesus, and I think, yes, there's, I think there's a familiarity, not a fear there. But can I suggest, uh, Michael Cooper, uh, and, and just to be a little, maybe a little more controversial if we are already not being this way, and this, is, this has been a and a personal uh, um, uh, insight, um, I could be wrong about it. But, um, you know, I think that part of our problem goes back to the very term evangelicalism. Now, what that means is is that we're to be focused on the evangel, which, of course, is the gospel, right? So we're gospel-focused people. And by the way, I work with City to City, so don't misread me here. Gospel focus. Now, but here's the thing: the gospel is a contested doctrine. At best, now, who's got the gospel? I mean, like we, we keep arguing, what is it? I mean, like you know, there's all kind of tone and theories and all that kind of stuff. Now, it's it's critically important. Is the gospel is the good news of Jesus, right? But but who exactly has got it tied down? And here's the problem: is that it becomes a doctrine. Mm. Uh, it's an impersonal doctrine that is about, you know, a a kind of a a conceptual framework of how we might understand soteriology, how we've been saved, and and, and the proclamation and and all all that stuff. Here's the problem. We're never told to be gospel-oriented, centred. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture, anywhere. We we, we are meant to be Jesus-centred people. We're meant to be Christ-centred and that we to define ourselves by his person. And here's the thing, you know, Jesus is the gospel with the face and more. And, this, and, the, and to Mark's previous point is that we've tended to focus as evangelicals on the, the cross and the self, salvific dimensions of, of, of the faith, of, of Jesus' life. Maybe on the cross we argue about, you know, we believe in the resurrection, we, we argue a little bit as evangelical about the return of Christ um but we agree he's coming back but it's all down there at the far end of jesus life but what what about the rest of it what about the pre-existence of christ and the the cosmic dimensions of that as the agent of creation what about the israel story about the formation of a nation and of the messianic impulse uh, in in a group of people over centuries of formation what about Jesus, you know, his his life, his teachings. We just ditched that stuff. I mean, look, and this is the the, the, the the apostles' creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his son, our savior, born of the Virgin Mary. Oh, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Whatever happened to Jesus? We took Jesus out the equation. We just jumped from one end to the other, extracting doctrine. And I think that's the problem. Hmm. We've ended up with Jesus. We don't look excellent in Jesus because he's not the center of our faith. And I think this is the biggest correction, a re-Jesus.
0: Well, this is something that, like, I mean, you're hitting on or around kind of the the, the continual neutering of Jesus that we have all seen and done because, um, Michael, uh, you you refer to uh, the fact that we're just... (laughs) The, a fear of Jesus, right? You don't you don't say afraid. We don't mean afraid, but a, a healthy and a right fear with who Jesus is in all of his fullness. Because when we come to Jesus in all of his fullness, when we see him or rather we revere him for who he is in that fullness, then we do have to get to uh, where Jesus talks about uh, in the is it, is it in the introduction or the start of the first chapter when you guys talk about the fact that it is uh, Christo formation, really? Um, Read Jesus is that how do we, we've already talked about it. You all have that thinking, that feeling, that acting like Jesus. That, that is a very necessary step if we come to Jesus in his fullness. If we continue to look at Christ as God in the flesh, uh, then there are very necessary implications to that. So I think going back to the discussion of evangelicalism and what has happened in the American church, that's the answer of what happens when you have a neutered Jesus. Well, here, <laughs> this is what's happened. Um
3: Some brilliant uh, person once said that uh, we are perfectly designed to achieve what we are
0: achieving. I I think that person might be with us here somewhere. It's Alan Hirsch. For those keeping track at home, it's Alan. Um, Because we were aiming at not Jesus, right? Our, Our whole intent wasn't actually to sit in front of the risen Lord the glorified King over all creation. It was a version of Jesus that we liked that we were aiming at. And right now we're getting kind of the results of that. And we're surprised. Um, I really wish I had a snappy question after that observation. I don't, but I just think this, uh, the fact that read Jesus is written again to see that Christa formation in us is so absolutely necessary if we come to confront or be confronted by the risen Lord.
2: I wonder also whether uh, to Michael's point about the fear of Christ. Um, so this is a question to Michael really, but uh, do you think that also involves the, the uh, the mystery of Christ in a way? I mean, do you think in some regards, uh, we think we've kind of, we know him and we've got him boxed up and he died for my sins and he's full of love and he, cares for me there's something heartwarming about that but not only this notion of the cosmic christ in in whom all of creation is held together i mean that's that's a pretty scary and awesome sense but also the fact that a lot of what christ says and does is esoteric or mysterious not not all of it there's enough of it for us to understand but do you think also part of that has to do with the over well Alan said over familiarity, but with the with the oversimplification of the person of Christ
3: mm-hmm.
2: hmm. yeah oh well yeah i I think so i
3: I mean when I think of the fear of christ i I'm thinking in terms of recognizing how awesome he is, and that that should compel us to some different way of life uh and that's what I think that you all are getting at in in the book, read Jesus. Um, Alan and I have had multiple conversations around this, the the whole picture that we see of the apostle John standing before the son of man in revelation chapter one. And when he describes Jesus's form, he falls down as if he's dead. And that's that, that kind of reverential awestruck uh, sense that uh, that we should have of Jesus, I think, is altogether absent. And it, it just makes me wonder if we were as John and fell before Jesus as if dead, if then we might be able to recalibrate ourselves to Jesus's life. I mean, after all, this this man who lived on this earth, who did these remarkable things that you all are describing in the book, it, it, and Mike, what you refer to in your your uh Jesus in the gospels class this is that person that John stands before who actually had walked with Christ on this earth and yet he recognizes how utterly awesome he is and uh and that kind of you know pivots the whole uh, rest of the the revelation to uh, focus the church on on Jesus's mission and what it looks like. And I know in, in your book, you're trying to get us to that. You're, you're you're saying that we need to recalibrate. We need to think about Jesus differently. Uh, we need to understand him properly. And when that happens, then something is going to happen in the church. So the, so the book is as much about re-jesusing as it is re-churching, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think that um, to Alan's point before about gospel um, as the good news, we're we're evangelicals, we're we're good news people. Um, And he made this point, uh, you made this point, Alan, you're you're here in this conversation. Alan, you made this point um, about for many people, the good news is really an explanation of an atonement theory of a substitutionary atonement. So in essence, when we say we're good news people and we compel our churches to go out and to share the good news. We're, we're effectively saying, go out and tell people about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and how that really helps to realign their lives and reshape their purpose in this world. And you now, if, if you put it that way, wouldn't it be interesting to see how many people sort of took you up on that charge to go do that? But one the, of the good news is actually the good news of the kingdom and the good news of the king. And what if we equipped people not to learn a kind of four-staged, you know, booklet about, you know, being on two cliff faces or, or something like that, but what if we actually soaked people in the gospel stories? And good news in people was actually just about introducing people to Jesus. And you can't do that in one conversation. Like, let's free people from this idea. You could maybe tonight at the pub, like, turn to some stranger or a friend and get chatting and pull out a little tract, and you could tell them the whole gospel in that conversation, as if you could possibly do that. But what would it look like if we equipped churches full of people to be so obsessed by and interested in and shaped by the person of Jesus that it just became a normal, everyday mm-hmm interaction with people to describe, well, the reason I do this is because Jesus said that, or uh, the reason why my family is so kind of that is because, you know, Jesus did this, or what would it look like if, without sounding sanctimonious, maybe the way I just put it then sounds a bit sanctimonious, but without sounding sanctimonious for the whole impetus and trajectory of our life to be obvious to others that it's shaped by those stories. And you know, my my fear is that we're just not equipping people a to know real Jesus as we've been talking about, but b to be able to talk about him. We just need to give people storytelling workshops. Like, right, Michael, tell me your favorite story about Jesus. Uh, right, Andrew, what's the what's the most recent parable that's really got under your skin? Like, just like, and it should just pour out of us. So, um, I tell a story in another book I wrote about how I went to a, a conference of Christian surfers. Um, and and uh, we got talking about this aspect of things, and I, I did a little exercise with them. I said, "Tell me who your favourite surfer in history is." Christian surfers are a Christian ministry that like evangelise kids on beaches, and they're great. They're a great ministry. I said, "Tell me who your favourite Christian surfer is," and like you know, there was a hundred surfers there, and the room just erupts with people like throwing names at me. And then when I I said, "Well, let's just pick one, pick one, pick Kelly Slater, who's won the world." championship like 12 times or something. So Kelly Slater, let's just pick him. Even if you didn't say he was your favourite, let's just pick him. What do you guys know about Kelly Slater? And again, guys... The room was alive. Like people are yelling facts at me and correcting each other and telling stories and talking. You know, they, they told me which movie stars he's dated and what surfboard he learned to surf on and what surfboard he uses now. And One guy was listing the years he's won the world title and he got one year wrong. And the whole room went crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was just electric. Then A little later in the day, I'm talking about what I just said. Then we need to learn, you know, to be able to tell the stories of Jesus. So I said, So, guys, tell me what do you know about Jesus? This is exactly the same question I just asked earlier in the day about Kelly Slater. What do you know mm. about Kelly Slater? The room from busts. What do you know about Jesus? Crickets. I'm not saying they don't love Jesus, they do. Eventually, someone says, He died for my sins. Great. I said, What else? You know, He's the Son of God. Good. You know, what else? Like, slowly. We managed to eke out like some some information about Jesus. And my point in recounting that story is to say we just need churches full of people who can talk about Jesus the way surfers can talk about Kelly Slater. Like we just ought to be full yeah. of yeah. him. Like it, it yeah. ought to be. He ought to be our hero and our king and our Lord and the person we most want to be like. And we're obsessed by. We've read every book we can find about it. Like we just should be full up with him. And bleh, this should just like proud eke out of us in the kind of most natural and uh and relational kinds of ways and so that's discipleship to go back to alan's point that's to disciple people is to fill them up with jesus maybe they're not going to all read you know big long books by tom wright or whatever the case may be but like here read this chapter here read this thing here's a quote by so-and-so here's a, a shorter easier book to read read that like why are churches not doing that like not to go back to being obsessed with being a lecturer, but like my students have to do readings each week. I mean, we put I put all my my notes up in a in a um, uh, up on Moodle right, for students to be able to access information. Here's an extra chapter. You don't have to read it, but if you want, like this would be helpful. Like here's an exercise for you to do. I, I read this before we come to class next week. Complete this survey before we. Like, it's just constant. Now I'm not saying church should be like that, but like a 30 minute sermon. Every Sunday, and this week it's on First Kings, and next week it's on Revelation. Like, what? Like, why are churches not doing the kinds of things we're talking about to actually shape people into the likeness of Jesus? And then encouraging on that basis for them to go and share the good news. So, do you think that a part of the issue is
3: that we've professionalized ministry to such an extent that we have, um, it, it, we've we've disconnected the people's abilities to talk about Jesus because they're not that person that's standing in in the pulpit. I mean, your your story about the surfers is just really remarkable because certainly they've heard about Jesus. Oh, for sure. But but, but what is it that and you know what is it that prevents them from saying? In describing him as they would uh, a Christian surfer if it's not that there might be some some uh cognitive uh disruption that has occurred because they are used to hearing somebody else talk about Jesus in a in a professional way
2: i think in their case in that particular case christian surfers are very evangelistic and i think it for them, the only way they conceived talking about Jesus was through the prism of this yeah. kind of two yeah. ways to live or four spiritual lawsy kind of thing, which they did a lot of on beaches. So in their case, I think it's like. They've just got this little window through which they talk about you. so, you know, tell me about Jesus, it's like, "Oh, I've got to squeeze that through this grid. Uh, but for other people who are not as evangelistic as as Christian surfers guys where I was talking to, I think it might be what you're saying. It might well be that uh, you just invited an evangelist to church and he talked about Jesus in the most winsome and appealing and interesting ways. And now you told me to go and tell my friends about Jesus. Well, I can't do that. Like count me out. Like I, I just get all tongue tied and all emotional. When I can't mm. talk about it. So yeah, I suspect maybe kind of professionalization of, of evangelical or evangelistic ministry might have some part to play in that.
0: I think it's got a big part to play too, just in the the everydayness that some of us, some of us who are teachers, academics, preacher types, uh, we see what we think in the Bible is just kind of a all day, every day, every aspect of life. This is what, what Jesus wants, right? That, that, that filling us up so that he is coming out of our eyeballs um, in a healthy and a good way. Um, like that's, that's the type of inundation we want of Jesus. And, and then we get up and in my case, again, I get up and I preach and I am super passionate about Christ and I want people to, Gain that passion, passion, and like you said, for thirty minutes they're in, and then it's kind of saying, okay, so now take take this aspect of Jesus, and then continue to chase after Him to con- to continue to want to look, feel, think, act, talk like Jesus. Um, on Monday, on Tuesday afternoon, in your relationship with your spouse, how you parent your children—these are all aspects that we feel like we we've compartmentalized. Jesus is what we do on Sunday. Jesus is what we learn about in class. Jesus is a topic we talk about. He is not somebody who is both known and worshiped and should affect every day. Mm-hmm. And but it's hard when we have this conversation even as I'm talking about this because you know push back please. But sometimes it feels those of us who are so excited about Jesus can also unintentionally get into the area of coming across like shaming people who aren't as excited as we are. Um, and they might they might just say they can't. Um, I have my job. I'm a doctor. I don't have time for that. And and so we say we want to see Jesus in in your whole life and. Where is that? How do we continue to convey this desire to read Jesus that is a freeing thing, an encouraging thing, and not a shaming thing? Well, I, yeah. I think,
3: um, I, yeah, go ahead, Alan. I know we're keeping you past another meeting, but we're grateful for uh, you, you joining us. Yeah. I'd love to hear just uh, where it is that you're hoping read Jesus
1: leads us. Well. Um... Oh, for me, I, I think, um Mike, that you know my hope is that it's the recalibration point is that we we take stock of um of 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 all that we do in the light of this um, most central defining idea for the christian. Um, and and I think one of the challenges be for us uh, to your issue, Andrew, of how do we change it? I think, is that we have to take discipleship seriously again, and discipleship not simply as
2: um,
1: heads of doctrine, you know, for membership class. I mean, discipleship is a as a lifestyle of focused around the person of Jesus and, and literally loving, loving him into our lives. You know, in other words, it's, it's conformation, which Paul says is our eternal destiny is to be conformed to the image of God in Christ Jesus. This is what we will be like finally uh, in our eternal state. We will be finally like Jesus, and it's got to start now. And I say to people, if you don't like, you know, if you don't want to hang out with Jesus now, you're going to hate heaven um, because it's all about Jesus, you know. And, um, you know, you've got to get involved with that process now. It's It's just simply a set of beliefs that you can tick the box on. And that's the problem with our current, phrasing of the gospel is that it asks for belief not following Mm -hmm. Uh, it doesn't ask for uh you know for attunement of one's life to that person it just asks for creedal understandings and i think it's a huge mistake and we need to correct this uh in this grand oh shit moment we find ourselves in i think we need to correct
2: this thing um We've so always interpreted Paul's Paul's used to the word faith as belief, haven't we? Pistis, that word means can mean belief, believing the right things, but very often in the New Testament also believes allegiance, believes mm. Mm. loyalty or steadfastness, like mm. holding to. And mm. yeah, to your point, Alan, absolutely.
3: Yeah, well, well, this has been great, guys. We're so grateful for you joining us. Again, we've been talking about Alan and Mike's uh, new book, Read Jesus, Remaking the Church in Our Founder's Image. Uh, It is out. Uh, It's a great read. And I think an important contribution to uh, the way that we need to be thinking uh, about our own uh, belief in Christ, but also how we communicate him to others. So guys, thanks so much for, for uh, the work that
0: you've done. Yeah. Thank you very much um, for Alan and Mike. Uh, if people are interested in buying read Jesus, what's the best website that they can get that? And then where can they keep following you or keeping up with what you are doing in the world?
1: Well,
2: uh, they can, can read a, a from... free chapter at readjesusbook.com um and then there's links at that website to you know other
1: booksellers yeah and just you know you can get them elsewhere if you want to buy in bulk get it from that that, that we can we can beat them on prices we just can't compete with amazon on other things but you can get it all at the standard book book distributors that you normally use okay and we'll
0: link that on our facebook page as well all right excellent
3: awesome.
1: thanks guys appreciate it thank, thank you me. very much great to be with you
0: Well, uh, we want to thank both uh, our Aussies for joining us today. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Truly, truly a joy. And we want to take this moment to thank our listeners as well. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Please go buy the second edition of Read Jesus. Allow it to uh, focus your uh, affections, (laughs) your eyes, your whole life uh, on Christ. And then allow that to continue to bless others as you chase after him, are satisfied in Christ. Um, We are excited uh, that we get to have this moment on the Ephesiology podcast, and we are thankful that you as a listener continue to join us on the Ephesiology podcast. If you would like to continue uh, engaging with uh, both this topic and many others, you can check out our Facebook page or uh, go to ephesiology.com and look into our master classes. Uh, Maybe God actually is using uh, this podcast in this moment to propel you into Uh, further work in this world. And uh, so go and check that out, aphysiology.com masterclasses. And uh, well, for now, I will sign off for Michael, for Matt, who is unable to join us today, uh, for Alan and for Mike. I'm Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us on the Ephesiology podcast.